And now, coming to you live from the Goshen Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. The 400 podcast, this is our 1200th podcast. I don't know what it is. And not once, do you realize, not once have we talked about George Gershwin? Well, that's a distraction, I, I suppose. <laughs> and I, I suppose you, you could fit Rhapsody in Blue in somewhere, I, I guess. Um, American in Paris is kind of a fantasy. Um, Porgy and Beth is... Nah, it, okay, it's not going to work, is it? Well, it's not going to no. work overtly, but you could certainly talk about an attitude, and you could imagine how it would come into play. And you could certainly talk, if you thought about it long enough, about works that actually incorporate Gershwin in some ways rather than the works of Gershwin themselves. I suppose that's true, but I can't think of any great science fiction or fantasy movies that have used Rhapsody in Blue or... No, uh, nor can I off the top of my head. Though I could imagine uh, Kathleen Angoonan or Peter Straub or someone like that trying. Oh, that's probably true. There probably are some great Gershwin's... Summertime has got to be a factor in some fantasy novel or some horror novel. And our listeners will tell us which one it is if they're paying attention. We shall, we shall leave it as an exercise for the students. So right. tell me, Gary, how's, how's your reading week been? A reading week is, is, is always annoying when it's also deadline week. Uh, but it's, it, it, it's been enjoyable. I've been reading some uh, lovely things, which um, I am surprised by, I guess. Well, one of them I think you've already mentioned uh, is the Kelly Robson novel, God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach, which, as, as somebody said this on Twitter... The first thing you're thinking is, is this Ruel Dahl's version of Greek mythology? Um, but the title is much more um, literal. Yeah, right. It's it's it, it, it's a playful title for a very complicated story, um, and, and and really surprisingly thoughtful in all kinds of ways. One of the things that's interesting about this, because we've talked about novellas, and this is a longish novella. I've, I've not the page page count listed on Amazon is 240. No, 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 no. It's under 40,000 words. Okay, so, but there's a lot that goes on in it. And one of the things that we haven't talked about specifically when we've talked about the revival of uh, the novella or the preeminence of the novella in the last year is how writers have begun to develop techniques for packing whole chunks of novels into Parts of novellas. I mean, this is a novella, without giving too much away, this is a novella that really falls in two parts. Part is this incredibly detailed future dystopian world where people are climbing up from underground and trying to reestablish life in the um, uh, devastated uh, ecology that we've left for them. And the second half is a time travel story going to Mesopotamia. The first half of the novella could have been a novel by itself. The second half of the novella could have been a novel by itself. And I, th I, I think that's almost true. I think what you've got is you've got what appears to be not so much a sufficiently densely realized future and past, but a sufficiently skillfully written future and past to appear as though it's dense enough to support the entirety of a novel. I mean, I suspect it could. And I suspect that there will be more. I think Kelly may be writing another novella in the same setting, which would be great. Um, what struck me reading Kelly's work over the last, say, three years when she's, you know, because that's all her, all her career stretches back, is just how varied it is. I, you know, I had not, when I read Waters of Versailles, particularly seen her as a science fiction writer, but by the time you get to the story that she did, and it's terrible, the title escapes me right now. The, the story that she did for Clark's World earlier this year about the people living in the nasal passages of Sky Wales or whatever it was. Uh, and the horror story that she did for, uh, for Ellen Datlow at uh, Tor.com, uh, A Human Stain. You see just how um, flexible a writer she is. And she has what it takes to be a really good science fiction writer. You see it in, in God's Monster and Lucky Peach. The reason that I never made the James and the Giant Peach and Roald Dahl connection is I saw the cover very early on. Uh -huh. And the cover would completely... I mean, the cover is an image, if you've not seen it, of the main protagonist, who is a late, middle-aged, 
female scientist who's had her lower limbs replaced or augmented by giant tentacles, basically. Mm. And that kind of rock really pushes the whole James and the Giant Peach thing right out of the picture pretty early. It does. But I, and I, saw, I saw that cover, but after I'd read the novella. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something we should probably go back and talk to Irene Gallo about again. How much does, does seeing a cover change your reading if you read it without the cover? I mean, the cover of the, 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 the third Bindi novella, for example, is a lovely cover. And Anybody who doesn't know the kind of character you're dealing with knows that immediately from the cover. But I don't know. It's hard to say. I guess do most people look at covers before they read books now, or do they just get the online? I guess even with the online version, you're getting the cover. My experience has been, unless you are reading an advanced reader copy or a manuscript, you always see the cover and the copy first. It's how you identify a book. You know, there's something really interesting about reading a work of literature before it's got a title on it, even. That's true, and I've done that a couple of times as well, or, or things where the title turns out to be something different. But the point I was making about her skill in, in building the world is not confined to her. I mean, uh, we've mentioned Nettie. I was another novella I'm reading is uh, Aliette de Baudard's um, The um, Tea Master and the Detective, um, which is set in her Zuya universe. And again, it's very dense. There's a lot of stuff in it. Uh, you don't need to know about the universe and the backstory of it. Uh, but you go back to her earlier novellas on a uh, on a red planet drifting, and there's a, a real skill in sketching a world in such concision that you can fit that world into a novella. Uh, and I see this happening more and more. One of the things I'm wondering is, are writers such as this taking advantage of a more sophisticated readership that there's no longer a need on their part a felt need to provide um, an expository lump about what this world is like because none of these novels have expository novellas have expository lumps in them um, well I think that probably I mean, I've not read Aliette de Bardard's novella yet but my guess is that it comes down to skill at embedding the ex- exposition into the narrative rather than having expository lumps I'm not sure that I think, I mean, to some degree, I think the general readership is more, or the general audience is more aware and more familiar with science fiction tropes. And so you don't have to spend a lot of time explaining the trope itself. You do have to spend time explaining, you know, building the world and developing characters and going through interactions. But I think that what's happening is people who have not had much reason to are devoting their skills. And for most part, the people who are writing novellas right now in the market are writing up to a length, not down from a length. They're short story writers learning to write at a greater length rather than novelist writing to learning to write short. Uh, there are exceptions, but generally. And I think that's an interesting part of it. I think you know, a lot of it is evolving skill, shall we say. Uh, it could be evolving skill. My question is, is it evolving skill also on the part of the readers? Um, that seems to me the kind of transformations that are happening in these novellas, the kind, we mentioned, for example, the main character being a, a, a sort of a cranky middle-aged woman, but she has, you know, six legs and two arms. Uh, that's not explained. A lot of this stuff isn't explained. The fat babies thing isn't explained. Uh, that's a lot more radical uh, a trope than you would get from a Heinlein or an Asimov novella 60 years ago. I think that's true. I think there's, there's a density of conception that does come along. What I'd say, though, it is that though that though that work is still aimed, I mean, yeah, like uh, God's Monster and Lucky Page, which has, I think, reasonably broad appeal, nonetheless, at its core, is coming from a central science fiction imprint, you know, directed at the core science fiction audience in its in initially at least. So you're talking with people who are well across these kind of tropes. I don't know. It's very hard to assess what the, what the readership is willing to process because you look at how for example greg egan's career has gone and he tends to have a lot of exposition or or on the other hand i guess you look at stan robinson who may, who lays his exposition bare in front of you so that you, you know you can't overlook it um i guess maybe maybe the audience is more sophisticated one question that i've been pondering which is not related to that but is related to the subject at hand is um, I saw Christopher Rowe on social media alluding to a conversation he'd been having about whether the novella was a different form from the short story or the novel. 
And I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea that it might be, but I'm not sure that it is. Um, well, I mean, they're, they're the classic uh, writing workshop definitions that, you know, a, a short story has a single continuous thread and a single central character and a central single transformation or a revelation or epiphany. Uh, and the novella has more than that, but doesn't have the multiple characters and multiple lines that you have in a novel. Uh, I'm not sure that that works as a definition when you look at classic literary novellas. Uh, nobody used to, and again, this is a kind of, I think, definitional thing that is more obsessive to science fiction writers and readers than it is to general writers and readers. By, by, by our standards, uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness or Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea are novellas. Um, everybody thinks of them, well, okay, Heart of Darkness, most people think of as a as a novella. But again, it they both establish an environment, but they and the, a lot of time is spent on establishing that environment. That's true with the same science fiction novellas we're talking about. But once you've established that, the narrative is a fairly straightforward short story narrative. My point again, without we should we obviously we need we at this point we owe it to Kelly to talk to her about this at some point. But my point about what, that particular novella, uh, God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach, is that once you've established all the all the world, which has all kinds of narrative implications, the actual narrative is a time travel story, which is in the tradition of a lot of time travel stories, uh, and it's, sure. it's a group of folks doing one thing. Okay, let me ask you this: How is the structure? So I think the argument, which is an argument that I've heard. Going back as far as I've got an old paperback in there called Six Great Short Novels of Science Fiction, edited by Groff Conklin in 1954. And he was talking about novellas, a perfect length for science fiction, because you can build the world, you can generate all the sense of wonder, but then the actual action that takes place in it is not nearly as complicated as the action of a novel. See, you say that, but let me sort of come at it from a, a, a well, let me test it this way. If God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach is about 40,000 words, if Passing Strange by Alan Clage is about 40,000 words, if Agents of Dreamland by Caitlin Keenan is in the mid to high 30s, right? They're novellas, fine. Well, it strikes me that Double Star by Heinlein can't be more than 60,000 words, and certainly most of the, um, the John D. MacDonald, Travis McGee novels are... 50 or 60,000 words long. How are they novels and these other stories aren't? Ignoring you know, awards rules and number counts. I, I think that partly goes back to publishing history and that sort of thing. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there are people who, some of whose favorite murder men, the, the Ian Fleming, James Bond novels were, yeah, yeah. they were all less than 200 pages in paperback at the same uh, so, so to some extent, that may be an artifact of of publishing. That uh, at some point, and uh, somebody must have done a history of this. There is a fairly decent history of paperbacks in America called the Paperbacking of America, uh, and he talks about this a little bit. That at some point, partly because printing technology got so much more sophisticated, some point starting in the late '60s and through from then on, paperbacks got bigger and bigger and bigger. Until then, and I remember having this discussion once with Aldous Budgers, who was editing paperbacks for at least a couple of lines, uh, you had two links. Uh, you know, you, you had 192 pages if it was an Avon book and 160 pages maybe if it was uh, a Signet book because that was what they were going to manufacture. That was it. Um, and so it, was, it had to be marketed as a novel, uh, even if it might have been published almost in its entirety in a magazine two months earlier. Uh, so that, I think, partly was what happened when the whole science fiction and fantasy market opened up to full-length novels, uh, which happened over the last, really over the last 50 years, I think. Full-length novels meaning up to a thousand pages. So are these Tor.com novellas basically the modern uh, dime novel? I don't think it's a modern, well, maybe the modern dime novel. Uh, they're certainly better written and better paid for than dime novels. Yeah, uh, no, no, I mean, yeah, I, I absolutely get that. And I actually re realize as well that probably the truer metaphor is the you know, dime trade paperback because there's not a true mass market paperback happening. Uh, it's not distributed that way. 
But nonetheless, the basic point that they are this um, fairly cheap. I mean, if you're buying them digitally, at least, uh, they're very cheap to buy. Uh, they're quick reads. They're a couple of hours reading. Uh, that sort of thing. The sort of thing you could sit down and read a lot of. I think there's a there's another comparison that might be made, and, and I know this involves getting back into publishing history. Back in the early 50s, uh, there were a series of what were called galaxy novels. They were formatted like Galaxy Magazine. They were really not novels. They were mostly novellas. Uh, Blish's Jack of Eagles was one of them. And before that, there was a uh, murder mystery paperback that would publish short novels in, in, in the format of a paperback magazine. So they were generally respectable. Uh, and I think by the same token, you can say that most paperback originals, if you go back to uh, the first, in, in terms of our genre, the first two important imprints were probably uh, Ballantyne and Gold Medal Books. Gold Medal Books published I Am Legend in, what, 1954? I Am Legend is maybe 60,000 words. I'm not sure. It's a really thin book. Um, and that, but in that format, you know, what, what was considered a pocketbook at the time, a paperback, uh, it was a novel. Now you don't really, uh, that, 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 that whole marketing structure has gone away. Those things were sold in, in, in drugstores and hobby shops and there anymore. So the market, the newsstand market, the thing where you just stumble across something and say, hey, I think they'll, I'll pick that up, is entirely online now. It's, so you've it's read, no longer commuter rail station. So you've read God's Monster and Lucky Peach. What else have you been reading? Um, I've read John Kessel's Pride and Prometheus, but we'll be talking about that on a later podcast. Yeah, we, we, we plan to. I mean, I guess it foreshadows, but we plan to sit down and have a chat with John and with uh, Dora Goss. So that should be fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I just a, a shout out since we, you know, it's always worth shouting out to people you know, if you are listening to the podcast when this goes out in the week of the 21st of January we're about two weeks away from Pride and Prometheus by John Kessel coming out from Saga and it looks like a good one, I've not read it but I will be, it's on, in my, it's on my Kindle Gary and um, the other book I'm always excited by the books that came in the mail in the last couple of days and after we had Jane Yolen on I received a copy of Mapping the Bones uh, which is, uh, and, and it's upset. We talked to her about this. I know it's upsetting to her. It's upsetting to read Holocaust novels, and yet this one is framed around Hansel and Gretel, mm -hmm. and it raised another issue, which mm -hmm. we we touched upon with Jane, but not in terms of um, other writers so much. This is a segue. Uh, this, is, this is a real life segue. Watch. This is a segue. Uh, like 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 the guy in the little two legged, th two wheeled thing whizzing around. Watch him seg. Well, my question is, when did this begin? Because, uh, okay, Jane is writing a serious novel. I'm not sure if it's even really a fantasy novel, but it's certainly built on the template of a fantasy, on the armature of fantasy, if you will. Well, and I was it's looking built at, on the armature of a fairy tale rather than a fantasy, <laughs> isn't it? There's there's a witch that eats people in Hansel and Gretel. It's a fantasy. Come on, it's not just your. No, I'm, I'm gonna stick by this. I'm gonna stick by this. There's, you know, sort of. Uh, the origins of epic, you know, ep epics, which you know, form part of the origins of fantasy. There are the classic children's tales and fairy tales that are part of the origins of fantasy, and a whole bunch of other things. But they're not actually synonymous. I mean, you're touching on, and we'll maybe get to them, works, really modern new work, that actually are strongly riffing off or reinterpreting mid-20th century children's literature or early 20th century children's literature, which is almost a different thing again from the fairy tale thing. And obviously Jane, who's super skillful at it in, and knows exactly what she's doing and is a master of it, is in the case of this book, which I've not read, but which you talked about, is riffing off you know, the, the classic fairy tales. As she, is, as she has done with, with Briar Rose before, as she's done with... Um, uh, the um, Peter Pan. I mean, there's there's there's, there are, uh, there's a little shelf of Peter Pan novels now. Uh, there were we, I was looking at the uh, really very nice anthology, which I enjoyed a lot. Robots versus Fairies, edited by Dominic Parisian and Novel Wolf. There are two stories in there that specifically allude to Peter Pan. There is Spielberg's movie AI, based on God knows how many treatments that go back all the way to uh, Brian Aldiss's Super. It's a, it's a it's a Pinocchio story. So, and now I got another thing, a, a novel I know nothing about. I got an email from a publicist wanting me to read a novel coming out by John Leonard Peelmeyer, 
called Hook's Tale, which is rewriting Peter Pan from the point of view of Captain Hook, I guess. Uh, and it mentions, this is a publicist talking, of course, in the tradition of Gregory Maguire's Wicked, taking you know the alternate point of view from The Wizard of Oz, John Gardner's Grindel, taking the alternate point of view from, um, from Beowulf. And this is a thing that's been going on for decades now, and it seems to be uh, more alive than ever. Uh, I mean, there are any number of very skilled writers today, Catherine Valenti being one of them, who's gone through a number of fairy tales, reimagining them, not always from an alternate point of view. But I guess my question is, does this sort of thing come in cycles? I mean, uh, Gregory Maguire has been making a career out of this for, what, 30 years now at least. No, I don't think it comes in cycles. I think it's persistent. Uh, I think that, I mean, if I were to, I mean, there, there are separate questions which are intimately related. There's the question of our, of writers' willingness to continue reapproaching, the, you know, what, what amounts to children's literature in different ways. And I suspect that actually has to do with the, avail- the availability of children's literature during the 20th century, the range of work that, they, that people could look at, and the repetition of, of key work again and again through your childhood. You know, you read Ch- Peter Pan as a kid's book. You encounter Peter Pan as a Disney movie, which you see over and over again. You then encounter somebody else. Peter, Peter Pan becomes bedded down as an ur myth to do with, you know, uh, youth in, in our culture. And so that's there. So there's that, and I think that's what accounts for some of what you're what you're seeing, particularly in the in the you know, Peter Pan from the point of view of Hook, which has been done before anyway. So it's just a matter of whether this guy's doing it in a different way. Who that's knows? true. Uh, I, I think one of the, I think you've also hit on something which is important and probably too obvious for us to continue with very much. And these are all figures that have sort of become culturally uh, available figures. In other words. I'm guessing that most of the people reading these re- Peter Pan redactions, for example, have probably never read Peter Pan. They've probably never seen the play of Peter Pan. They probably know Peter Pan from the various movies, from Disney, from TV adaptations, and so forth, and, and now from Wicked. Um, I doubt if most of the people who are riffing on Collodi's uh, um, Pinocchio novel, yeah. have read his novel, or even care to read his novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and Let me ask you this then, and this talks more to Robots versus Fairies, which is, I think, is an interesting an- anthology. It's well done. It plainly lifts its concept and structure from the Justine Lovelace Holly Black book, Zombies versus Unicorns, right down to the whole Team This versus Team That kind of thing. And it's interesting because obviously, um, at its core, Zombies versus Unicorns is horror versus fantasy, and Robots versus Fairies is really science fiction versus fantasy, rational thought versus irrational thought, even though that's never really developed in the book that very well. There are some great stories in it. First part of that, I, that I'd be curious to get your thoughts on is, what do you think, if anything, explains the persistence of fairy tales themselves in modern literature? What makes those tales those core stories, so robust that they can be constantly reinterpreted, reinvestigated, looked at from different angles? This is a, uh, this is a classic question, and there are whole books on it, one of which is by Jane Yellen, as a matter of fact, Touch Magic. I think one of the things that, I'm, I'm just repeating a lot of what she said now, is that there, except for the ones that are really venal, for example, the severely anti-Semitic ones, or the severely sexist ones, or the ones that uh, are, are severely class-based, like you must keep your own station in life. Most of the stories are extremely malleable. You can use them for all sorts of things. And I think the idea of using Pinocchio as the basis, for example, of a robot story uh, is a way of saying that you can take a very contemporary science fiction concept, namely artificial intelligence, which is basically, we now call artificial intelligence, but they were robot stories before that, and use fairy tales to explore the anxieties related to that science fictional concept. Uh, and it's, it's a very accessible way of thinking about robots. I mean, even uh, he probably, con- probably was not consciously using fairy tale motifs, but um, when Asimov was writing his robot stories, he was writing fairy tales about robots that save little kids. 
which is the same sort of thing you used to get in stories about somebody who may be ugly may be your friend. Um, robots can be goblins or they can be fairy godmothers. Well, you're talking about Annalee Newitz's story, uh, The Blue, Mary's, Blue Fairy's Manifesto, which I think is a really well-done story, really well, well interestingly thought-out story. Um, it's interesting, I guess, because that is one of the examples where you actually take a fairy tale template and a fairy tale concept and run it through the actual, an actual science fictional approach. And that's not something you see that much of. Even in this book, there's still an, ele an element of uh, everything being kept separate, either one or the other. You know, So that, that's interesting. We should make this clear for people who haven't seen it. This is not a collection of stories each one of which deals with robots versus fairies. There's one Catherine Valenti story, which is very funny, which actually deals with a kind of world wrestling entertainment contest between robots and fairies. Basically, the, and this is one of the interesting things about the anthology, uh, the authors basically, as you say, had to choose Team Robot or Team Fairy. And there are little afterwards for each of the stories in which they describe why I wanted to write a robot story or why I wanted... Uh, to write a fairy story. And those those little notes at the end told me a lot more about um, how writers were thinking about this than, than the actual anthology did, which is, in one, it's, there are, it's, it's full of good stories. In another sense, it's all over the map. There's no point being made by the anthology. It's a playful anthology. But one of the points was, uh, one of the points was made by Tim Pratt, for example, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, is that, um, you know, we're interested in... Um, robots because of how much like us they are they're, they're, they're closer in artificial intelligence is to a human the more interesting it is because an industrial robot isn't interesting but we're interested in fairies because of how different from us they are so I think there are two different ways of approaching storytelling in general and I thought that was a neat insight on Tim's part unless I completely misrepresented it no I don't think case. I have I mean I've read about half the book I mean if, if we're talking about you know what are you reading what am I reading that's what I'm reading right now I've had it for a little while but you know, this is the week I'm reading it. Um, I'm curious, since you read the whole book, what was the story that surprised you the most, or at least the one that came from an author that you were less familiar with that you found most rewarding? Okay, those are two separate questions, um, because uh, one, of the, um, one of the best stories in the book is by a writer I know very, very well, and that's Jeffrey Ford, who's Another story which I think is in the same general tradition of his uh, uh, Annals of Elanok. It's a story, it's, it's an epic fantasy about a group of fairies trying to climb his bookcase. That's basically all that happens in it. And it's done wonderfully well. And uh, I'm, I'm just trying to look now what, uh, what else did I, did strike me of people who I didn't know very well. Um, and a couple of writers that I was not terribly um, familiar with. I wasn't familiar with Sarah Gailey's work, which is fairly dark, and this is a fairly dark story uh, about a fairy uh, who visits this young boy, Peter, as he's growing up in the form of different animals. And then the, then it turns into a mad scientist story, unexpectedly, uh, where Peter turns out to be really, really a creep. Uh, I liked um, I liked a lot uh, the um, Annalee Newitt story we talked about. And at that point, the only fiction I'd read by her was, I think, one story and, of course, the novel Autonomous. And the one which I think, again, is a writer who consistently fascinates me because the way he plays with all kinds of traditions of science fiction is Lavi Tidhar, who did a story called The Buried Giant. And it's much more... One of the things I'm realizing for somebody who in some ways is a very dark and cynical writer is that there's a genuine affection and sometimes sentimentality in Lavi Tidar's work. And this comes out in the story which becomes more and more um, science fictional as you go through it. And Does it again, riff off the Ishiguro novel at all? No, it doesn't. There's nothing mm -hmm. to that at all. It, it, it's, 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 it's a boy... If anything, it rips off things like um, early Philip K. Dick stories. Uh, it's about a boy who's living in an environment where everything in it is there for him. Uh, it's a completely artificial environment, uh, and it shuts down when he's asleep. And he escapes this into the real world 
which is full of dangerous monsters. And this is the kind of thing that Tidar does all the time, called Manshanyagars, which is a word completely made up by Cordwainer Smith for uh, one of Cordwainer Smith's puns on English and German. It's spelled M-A-N-S-H-O-N something. But it's, it's a transliteration of the German word Menschenjager, which simply means manhunter. So these are manhunting machines. And what Tidar does in this is he, he starts off with a kind of a fairy tale story about a boy trying to find his way in the world, finding out that his entire world is artificial, finding himself into the outer environment, which is more dangerous and, than he thought. And this outer, outer environment now includes basically monsters from Cordwainer Smith, which most readers are not going to pick up on because most readers reading about Manchinyagers in Cordwainer Smith stories probably didn't know it was a German pun. And, and, and one of the things that Lobby does, as much as any writer today, is give us little Easter eggs for, for veteran science fiction readers. Uh, which never inter- interrupt the flow of his narrative at all. Uh, he's, kind of ma- he's kind of masterful at that. Um, I'm going to see if there are others. There's, uh, there, I don't know. Um, there are some stories in it that I was less impressed with, and I'm not going to say what they are necessarily, obviously. Um, I did not know Delilah Dawson, even though she's very popular in novels. She's a best-selling writer. Um, there's a Cat Howard story, and I, I have read one novel by her um, because it was a finalist for an awards jury I was on. And uh, it's very clever because it's based on the idea not of a fairy, but it's about a banshee. Uh, and it's, it's one of those elevator pitch stories where you say, okay, imagine there's this street busker who's really a banshee. And that's and you run with that, and, and, and she runs with it in pretty much the direction you'd expect but when you have a concept like that, you want them to do what you expect them to do with it. One of the odd strengths, I think, of a book like this and of anthologies generally, and I'm prejudiced in favor of them, is they do allow stories to be as long as they should be. I was, I, I'm not going to put it forward as the greatest story in the book or the greatest story you read all year, but I really did enjoy the opening story of this book by Sean and Maguire, uh, which... It wouldn't want to have been any longer than it was. No, and this is another story which I guess this has to do with part of the appeal of fairy tale stories um, is that you you want the resolution you expect. You can write a devastating fairy tale story, for example, and I'm sure people have done this, in which, for example, Hansel and Gretel just get eaten end of story and it's really depressing and and, and the parents end up dying of the plague or whatever. This is a story in which it's, I think it's constructed in a very clever way. Um, You're you're set in a kind of full fairy tale world, a a theme park. Uh, It's very obvious which theme park it is. And at some point early on in the story, you begin to, to suspect what is going to happen. At least I did. And you really want it to play out the way you want it to play out. And you want it if anything, to play out in a more ingenious way than you think it's going to play out. And she managed that. She managed to surprise me even though I knew where the story yep. was going. Uh, and that, that's always kind of a twist on the part. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 like, I like being surprised by um, predictable the endings that I thought were predictable and in some ways are, but they don't resolve in the way I expected them to. The, the classic example of that, um, we, we, don't, we don't talk about movies, but a classic example of that kind of resolution uh, was in the movie Get Out last year, uh, which was probably the best horror movie of the year if you read it as a horror movie, which some people don't. Uh, but the end of the movie is what you wanted to have happen, but not in remotely in the way you expected it to happen. Yeah. In other words, yeah, the you resolution know, thinking worked, you're but surprises it. Sorry, no, what's that? Oh, no, I, I was just thinking that, that, that that's a particular trick which some people can bring off better than others. And I think one of the things that a writer is doing when you're picking up a familiar template, and I'm not just talking about fairy tales and, and familiar children's books like The Wizard of Oz or Pinocchio. When you're, whenever you're dealing with a very familiar scenario, um, you have to 
contend with the fact that many of your readers are going to know the shape of the story and you have two problems in front of you. One is to satisfy the shape of the story as the reader expects it, uh, unless you're going to take it off completely in, in a different direction. And while satisfying expectations, surprising the reader by satisfying them in an unexpected way. And that kind of story I always sort of like. Or there's a third way, isn't there? There's the one where you are following the structure, but you're trying to use um, smoke and mirrors effectively enough to distract everybody from the fact that you are until it becomes inevitably obvious. Right. Um, which is the, the the reveal kind of story, where at, at some point, halfway or two-thirds through the story, you realize this isn't the story I thought I was reading at all. Um, and... That, it seems to me, it's harder to bring off, much easier to bring off badly. <laughs> yeah, I think I, that's probably a fair call. The reason, I, the reason I'm talking I've been watching a few TV shows, um, and one of them that started streaming here, and I assume it's streaming everywhere now, is Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. And they're allegedly, uh, well, they are based on Philip K. Dick stories, but... Um, there, there are some problems with the series. I've only watched maybe three or four episodes of it. One of the problems is these are based on stories from the mid-50s when, when Dick was publishing all of his stories. Uh, and so they're fairly simple in concept. But some of them are just, from a point of view of a science fiction reader, so blatantly obvious that you figure, okay, there's got, there's got to be a twist at the end of this somewhere. And then the, the thing is over and they haven't done the twist. Well, in 1955, maybe Philip K. Dick didn't need to do that in a short story he was selling for minimum rates to a digest-sized magazine. I think you have to do that today. You have to be able to make the story a little bit more sophisticated, and some of them just fall flat, even though they would have worked and probably did work perfectly well as run-of-the-mill science fiction stories in 50s magazines. I mean, the basic idea of, this, of, of, of the series uh, is not a bad one. Let's do a series based on Philip K. Dick short stories. The problem with that is not all Philip K. Dick short stories are that good. No, I've and got to say that I've been feeling very, very unsure about this whole idea of this this show. It's not one I'm planning on watching. Um, it's the sort of thing that if, if, if somebody rewrites a story and reconceives it in some way, it might work very well. Uh, but uh, the, the, there's a kind of failure to understand that a trope is so familiar that the trope by itself won't sustain the story anymore. And this is certainly true in terms of uh, science fiction in general. One of the reasons you don't see a lot of run-of-the-mill stories written by, I don't know, James Schmitz in 1956 being is because to today's reader, the, the, the bright idea in it has long since been absorbed in the fabric of reading science fiction and doesn't have any punch anymore. Um, that's unfortunate, but it's true. It's true of many Agatha Christie mysteries, as far as I'm concerned. Interesting. I, I was thinking as well. I mean, this, this, this really, these really are the dog days of the year for uh, for new books. So you know, like January is not the time you're, you're getting a lot of great new stuff. And I find myself kicking around trying to work out what else to read. You know, I've got books coming through that you are already reading i'm looking forward to reading i just got an arc of a book that's coming out any time now i don't know if you got a copy of it it's uh the only harmless great thing by Bro brooke bolander which looks I've interesting not seen that i've heard good things about it. yeah it looks mm. really good it's coming out from uh my friends at tor again shortly so yeah from the point of a reviewer you're right we, we do get things in advance we get manuscripts i've got arcs and this time of year is always depressing because I've got arcs of books that are coming out as late as June. Um, the Hanuroi Nimi novel, I think, is a June title. Uh, there are some great books looking for April. But January and February, I've got all these books which I really want to read, and I, I have to put them lower on the pile of the books I need to read right now. Uh, it looks like to me, from what I'm getting in the mail, it's going to be a very exciting spring once it gets underway. Uh, and possibly a very exciting summer as well. There are a lot of interesting things, you know, in the pipeline. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, obviously, do you have the new Sam Miller book yet? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a May or a June book as well. Uh, 
and it looks terrific. And one of the things that fascinates me about uh, about some of these, well, Hanu Ryanimi is not really a new writer anymore, but he's not written a lot of novels. But Summerland looks completely different from anything else. Uh, the Sam Miller novel looks completely different from The Art of Starving. Uh, I don't know what the next Annalise Lewis novel is going to be. But, you know, Autonomous was a brand new kind of voice. So it's fascinating when I, I, I see writers doing exciting new things, and I know they're good writers. Uh, so I'm, I'm finding that uh, fascinating. I'm also finding more and more mainstream kind of sort of fantasy things. I've gotten on mailing lists of publicists, and publicists don't understand what we do at all uh, in, 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 in these genres, and they're constantly trying to uh, publish. I have a novel, and I, it, it actually doesn't look that bad, uh, but it's about a, an immortal dog that spends 250 years looking for its master. Um, and it seems reasonably well done, but it's clear that from the mark, I, I, I can't remember the title of it, uh, or I would say it, I could go grab it. The point is, this is something that's not being marketed to the likes of us. This is being marketed as to the readers of A Dog's Life, is that what it was called? Or to the readers of A Dog's Purpose? Or to the readers of uh, Audrey Niffenegger? In other words, there's increasingly, and I don't know if it's just me because of what I get in the mail, if it's really happening, there's this shadow fantastica out there of books that are almost but not quite in our area, very seldom written by people who have any particular experience with fantasy and science fiction, and still being marketed more or less outside our field. And I don't know whether that's deliberate or not. There are marginal novels like Daryl Gregory's, for example, uh, that clearly are the work of somebody who knows the tropes of fantasy and science fiction and finds himself writing a novel which is marketable to a much broader kind of romance family comedy audience. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of uh, books that are still using more and more fantastic tropes, tropes about immortality, tropes about time travel, tropes about um, aliens sometimes that we never hear about in our field. The Locust seldom reviews. Locust doesn't review them because we're being snobbed. Because by and large, we don't see these things. Well, certainly I think that the problem for us, and it's a, one that I'm look, looking at as reviews editor and have some solutions I hope in, in play for, is that because we're not in the promotional stream for these works, we only see them once they've come out. And generally for us, that means that's too late to cover them. And that's unfortunate. But, you know, that, that happens. You know, there are all kinds of structural issues with you know, being in the, in, in the corner that we're in. Well, one of, the things, one of these related genres, which we know has been going on and, and which we see all the time, is the alternate history novel, uh, which you know is which I think of as the Harry Turtledove genre because he's done it, and he was clearly beginning as a science fiction writer. Now there's this whole subcategory of alternate history, which as novels still have their own genre apart from science fiction. But I was thinking about this because I was talking to... Um, uh, Rick Wilbur, who has a novella coming out in which they're playing baseball in ancient Rome for some reason. That sounds what is the baseball novel stuff things right now? I mean, Greg, well, yeah. Greg Gordon Eklund just put out two, no- two baseball novellas. What's the deal? A ba- baseball is a... We, we could go off on this. I could go off on a, a great... Is this like old white guys have fun? It's, 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 it's the most narratively... Open. It's the most science fictional of sports in terms of its infinity and eternity. Baseball. I will get back to my point in a minute, but this is just a little sub thing. We we should get Rick on to talk about this, or we can get Guy K. He can talk about this as well. Baseball is the only sport that has no clock and no time limit, um, and no actual physical definition of the size of the field. Uh, the outfield theoretically can stretch to infinity, which is why in different parts. So, so you have a field which can be, in theory, infinitely large, and you have a, have a game which, if it's tied at the end of nine innings, goes on 10, 12, whatever. In theory, it can go on infinitely. So it is the most imaginatively open of the games in that sense. Um, but the other point I was making about alternate history, and we can uh, come back to baseball if you like, is that when it comes to short fiction and novellas, alternate history still belongs to science fiction. When it comes to novels, it's its own thing now. 
Oh, that, that that's interesting. I mean, I hadn't really thought of... Yeah, I guess you are starting... You see more counterfactuals at not novel length outside of the field. You do see them, but not at oh, short yeah. fiction length. Yeah. But not at short fiction, partly because they only well, place I know the public. Least. I, I don't know what they would be. I don't. You're not going to see uh, counterfactual stories in, in, the, in the New Yorker or, or uh, the Iowa Review, I don't think. Um, and when uh, somebody like Gregory Benford writes a kind of mainstreamy, uh, well done. I started reading it and didn't finish it. I should have. Uh, the Berlin Project, it gets marketed pretty much as a mainstream novel and, and sold very well, I gather. Uh, mm-hmm. But but the whole story, turtle the, the whole kind of alternate Civil War, alternate World War II, uh, even Newt Gingrich wrote one of these things. That is a genre completely controlled, possibly by marketing departments who realize this is a readership separate from science fiction. But if you want to write a short story or novella, you've got to sell it to a science fiction market. At the moment, yes. Interesting. I don't. I don't know if that means anything. Well, are I don't there, know if there, either. I feel like I like. I, I want to be smarter about this for you th- th- than that, but I'm not. Um, there is a book I want you to read l- later this year because it's coming out in a, an American edition, <laughs> and it's terrific. It's this thing here. I don't know if you can see it. It's, I've heard a lot about that. Yes. I it's a really nice, handsome, hardcover edition. This is Syed Hussain's Gin City, which I read over my holiday break, and which I enjoyed really well. It's a second novel uh, from a... I want to say Bangladeshi uh, science fiction and fantasy writer uh, that was published in the UK. I don't know where it was originally published. Uh, and it's not in the US, an unnamed press pub- published in the US, and that's being reprinted by a major trade publisher. And it's, it's terrific. Really worth grab- grabbing a hold of. I will have out, to take a look. I think later in the day, le- le- came out towards the end of the year. So, yeah. Uh, there have been a, a number of gin novels recently as well, or stories. Uh, so I think part of that has to do, you mentioned this may be a Bangladeshi author. I know that there have been gin stories. Uthman Malik wrote one. I think this is one of the things that happens, and it happens a little bit in an anthology uh, like Robots versus Fairies, which is one of the benefits of, of opening up the field to so many new voices is we're getting a lot more interesting and imaginative short fiction, mostly fantasy fiction, some horror fiction, based on Japanese or Indonesian or uh, Indian or Persian mythology and, 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 and that sort of thing. And that's, I think, refreshing the field in a way. And these are, these are not stories which are exclusively written by people from those parts of the world. But I think they have reintroduced that um, um, kind of discourse so that uh, we get, for example, uh, stories about... Uh, Various kinds of Japanese ghosts. Uh, Chris Barzak has written a number of good stories. He lived in Japan and taught there, of course. So it's one of the things that, and maybe this is why it surprises me to see so many things that continually come back to the Wizard of Oz or Pinocchio or Little Red Riding Hood and that sort of thing, is that by now the fantasy readership is pretty sophisticated in looking at um, at other cultures, mythologies, and folklore and incorporating that. And some of the most tri- Frightening and original stories I've seen. Um, I'm, 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 he- I'm stammering now because I'm trying to think of the name of a particular kind of Indonesian vampire which consists of a floating head with a spinal. <laughs> I read two or three good stories about that figure, and uh, if, I, if I had my resources, I'd look it up right now. But I'd never thought about Indonesian folklore until I started reading that sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I think when uh, we looked a couple of years ago, there was uh, Indra Das's first novel about about werewolves, but about werewolves from the perspective of the mythology of India. Yeah, the and devourers. Yeah, that, that was the devourers. Completely different way of looking at what should be a cliche, and there was nothing cliched about that novel at all. No, no. Uh, Indra has really shown himself to be a, a marvelous writer, actually, over the last few years. And Devourers was a great book. I think. What you're also, you're seeing is one of the results of publishers and editors being more willing to bring in novel length work now. I mean, for a, you know, an independent publisher like On Name to do Side Hussein and then for that to be resold, uh, to see to see you know I think Tade Thompson's book uh, Rosewater is going to be republished this year, 
in a major tra- major print edition, uh, you're seeing more and more publishers willing to do that, willing to deal with the you know the language, you know, the translation barriers, and all that kind of thing. And that only helps, and enriches and changes things. That's good. Well, I think I think that's absolutely true, and I think I mean, for example, the Devourers was originally published, I believe, by Penguin India, and picked up a year by Penguin US. So to some extent, publishers get some credit uh, along with uh, um, people like ourselves who are keeping our eyes out for that. Anthologists like you. I mean, one of the things you've been doing, I I know you've consistently done this, and uh, we should mention that uh, that both novel Wolf and uh, Dominic Parisian did this with Robots vs. Stories is looking for these different kinds of voices and finding people who are going to you know, emerge as significant writers and uh, that's I'm sure that if you talk to the new writers trying to break into the field the people who are in a position that Andrew Das was in a couple of years ago that Usman Malik was in a couple of years ago it's probably not very easy to break into the field from their point of view but from the point of view of a reader I'm seeing a lot of these new voices and finding them extremely welcome. Oh yeah, very much so from, from a reader's perspective. I mean, I'll say from the compiler of a recommended reading list, it's a, it's a separate kind yeah. of a challenge, but that, that's a welcome one. I mean, the, the field needs to be you know, rejuvenated. You need to see you know, younger writers, newer writers, writers from different backgrounds come in or it all becomes very stale. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. I'd want to go back to a science fiction that was mostly written by middle-aged white men from Queens. No, and I think one of the things that uh, you may have seen some of this as well, uh, that, that happens when you look at that as your model for science fiction or as your model for fantasy, uh, that you're revealing your own tunnel vision to some extent. You know? mm-hmm. And it's just, There's a lot of this going on. Science, science fiction should be what I read as a kid. There have been uh, uh, some, some interesting experiments going on with people – having groups of young people, people 20 or under, read classic science fiction stories. And to the people conducting the experiment, there was some surprise and shock that they weren't very impressed with them. No, they didn't <laughs> ask them all for a hind line much. They, uh, they, they kind of, you know, by today's standards, Octavia Butler's stories are classic science fiction stories. They warmed a little bit to that. But by and large, readers today are expecting, I believe, and much more welcoming of something new and different. Um, I think so that's I'm, true. I, I don't know if you could write. Uh, I don't know if there's a market for it. I don't know. We should talk to um, Sheila Williams about this at some point, I suppose. I don't know if you can write a run-of-the-mill uh, filler story the way you used to be able to do when there were so many science fiction magazines that anybody who was a professional writer could grind out something to you know pay for that month's rent um, or that day's lunch, more likely. There's a lot of markets I, out there, Gary, but they don't necessarily pay a lot. But have you, do you, okay, but you, you, you know way more about these markets than I do. Are there markets for old-fashioned 1950s and 1960s sort of hard SF puzzle stories that don't do anything interesting with character or voice or nationality or tradition or narrative technique that just, okay, here's a solid story. Here's Here's the kind of story that you know, Gordy Smith used to write this story in 1954, and they were great. They were fine. I'm not saying they weren't great. But can you – is there a market for that kind of thing now? Other than analog? Uh, well, okay. Or, but or analog, um, I, I'd like to think that um, – I don't really uh, speak to that. Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show? Okay, so maybe there is, and maybe the readerships uh, are, are – what I guess what I'd say, actually, in fairness to all three of those publishing locations, who all publish far more diversely than that, uh, so it's glib in the extreme to say it, it's not so much that, the, I mean, yes, there are de- dedicated markets for exactly the kind of work you're talking about, but more to the point, there are places where you can slip them in amongst all the other work that's being published. Mm. You know? So you get a, publica- a publication that has some of that in its inventory and you can understand why they have some of it in their inventory you know um, if you're publishing a monthly magazine and you need to come up with 70, 80, 100,000 words of fiction mm. uh, a a professional uh, knocking out a professional level story that sits into the space you're talking about is actually pretty reliable and, and desirable 
No, I, I, I don't say it isn't. And I think uh, the, the minute I said that about having different voices, uh, I want to backtrack and say that there were assuming, or I was assuming when I said that, that somebody who's writing from the perspective of somebody from Pakistan, like Usman, or somebody from Bangladesh, or somebody from Indonesia, that they maybe they aren't going to write uh, old-fashioned hard SF stories, but of course they can. I mean, this is the other stereotype which I've talked about uh, a little bit on this podcast, and it's it's not one that I think is a major problem, but I know it has been in the past, that if you're an Indian writer, for example, or a Bangladeshi writer, are you supposed to write culturally appropriate stories to your background, or if you want to write an old-fashioned Heinlein problem story, can you do that? And of course you can. Of course you can, but it is an enormously um, complex thing. There's no doubt about it. You certainly see, quite understandably, some some people who are saying, I don't want every, every single thing that I have to say or do or write represent my cultural, racial, whatever uh, community. I, I, I would like to be able to write something else as well. You know, just because, well, in my case, just because I happen to be a middle-aged white Australian male doesn't mean that I necessarily want to write realistic fiction set in, you know, contemporary Australia. Just because, I mean, you could imagine, and she certainly does write beyond this, you could imagine Annette Okorafor going, I don't just want to write work that happens to come from my background. I want to be free to write whatever interests me. And sometimes... those writers get criticized for not writing, but I don't think it's a fair criticism. I don't think it's not a new criticism either. I mean, it's a criticism that goes back, and it's not limited to science fiction. Uh, there was one of the famous literary sort of controversies uh, happened to the, the great American novelist James Baldwin, who, who had written Giovanni's Room. He, he was a gay writer, but he was also the leading black writer of his generation. And, and when he wrote a novel, which is basically about uh, male homosexuality with white characters in it there were people saying you're supposed to be writing about us you're supposed to be writing about the struggle Chip Delaney heard some of the same things very early in his career I don't think that sort of thing happens anymore uh, I don't think if you're a woman writer you're expected to write feminist fiction anymore although I know people who have been faced with that um, I think that part of the reason I was looking at the uh, a very interesting manuscript, which we, we cannot talk about in further detail, about Joanna Russ. And she wanted to write some space operas, and she did. Um, and But she was not writing them to represent a point of view. She was writing them because – she was writing them with strong, independent women characters in them because those were the characters she wrote. But she wasn't doing it for the purpose of writing strong, independent. She was using the strong, independent women that she always wrote about in a space opera setting. And it worked perfectly well. From her point of view, she was trying out a new form. Yeah. Um, And I I think the same thing's true. So, yeah, obviously there's a kind of pigeonholing that could happen. And I think people like Nettie have very effectively resisted. The whole Bendy trilogy comes from Nettie saying, I wanted to write a story set in outer space. And she realized that if you set a story on a spaceship, it can't be set in Nigeria at the same time. (laughs) And and she was writing in that case, for for example, this is the other stereotype that I know she gets into. She was not writing about uh, somebody from from Yoruba culture, somebody from her own cultural background. She was writing about somebody from the Hemba tribe, which she's not even associated with. But the point is, yes, she wants to write different kinds of science fiction. She's a very good example. She wanted to write an alien invasion story with Lagoon, um, and, yeah, of course she's going to set it in Nigeria. She knows about that. But it's basically an alien invasion story because yeah. that was fun to write. Yeah. And now she's writing the Black Panther comics because she's having a lot of fun doing that. This is what you should do. Anyway. Writers should write what they have fun doing. I guess that's our philosophy lesson for this. Gosh, that, that's deep. This episode. We, we've really, really, this is deep this week. Well, I think, assuming that the recording didn't, weirdly go wrong about 20 minutes ago I think we've reached about an hour, hour so we might wind up frozen. there hmm? uh, well I can I can still see and hear you so it's probably a good time to uh, wind up the recording if you're beginning to get technical difficulty at your end can you hear me no he can't hear me I wonder if he's lost me in there okay well given that dear listeners we might 
wind up here, and I'll let Gary know. Uh, next week, we will be talking to John Kessel and Theodora Goss about their new novels. But until then, we remain now, as ever, your Cood Street Podcast.